Well, hey guys, welcome to the roundtable. Um, glad you could make it tonight. Um, we got a big topic tonight, so I'm going to give some introductory comments. And, and here's the deal with the roundtable. It's different than what we do in any other part of our ministry. And so this is like a classroom. Uh, this is not a sermon. This is a lecture. Um, we're gonna, I'm, I'm giving you information to take and process and use in your life. And so um, there's going to be conversations and talking. If you have a question, raise your hand um, and ask me the question, you know. If, if you didn't hear something I said, then stop me and say, you know, could you repeat that? And I want you to take notes because if you don't capture the information, then you're, you're honestly just kind of wasting time. So this, this is a lecture format. So on your tables, if you didn't bring a journal or something to write on, I printed out just some sheets of paper that you can use. And there's pens in the back of your seat, or there should be. If there's not one in the back of your seat, there should be one in the, neck, the seat next to you. There you go. So does everybody have a pen and something to write on? Yeah, so this is, this is classroom. This is, um, this is not a sermon. And we're going to do something interesting tonight. When it comes to more of your big theological questions or philosophical questions, we're going to have you text those questions in. And so Kristen's going to come up and explain how we're going to do that. And I'll tell you why we're going to do that. Or she might tell you why we're going to do that. <laughs> So okay, so we're going to try a new thing where you guys can text in. So that way, as, you, as, he, as Tyler's talking, if you think of a question, you can go ahead and text it in, and then we'll save it for the Q&A. Um, and it'll be completely anonymous. So especially knowing that we're doing the topic of evil and suffering, if you have a, kind of a more personal question or whatever, don't worry. We won't know who you are. You can just text it in. Um, a few little things. It's 100 it does a weird cutoff if it's more than 140 characters, so try to keep them concise. Um, and we have like a weird limit on how many we can take, so don't send in more than three questions per person. I feel like we can probably handle that. Um, so but so what you'll can. do, this is what it'll look like. Um, you can use Twitter or a text message, but so you'll text that number, 22333, and you put 5253 before your question, and that way it'll come to us and not just go to some random Okay, thing. so say that again. They're going to... It'll be on the screen the whole time. Okay. <laughs> for Walter, let's yeah. say it again. For David, right over there. What? You don't have to text twice. No, you put that... So where it says... That's so why we're doing this, guys. Questions know, right? right now. So see the bottom of the phone right there. So it says 5253, and then you put your question right below it. It can be the same text. And the number and you're texting if, it to is two two three three three. If you send a second question later, put five two five three and your second question, if that makes sense, um, to two two three three three. So the next slide will have that the text on there, and it'll be up there the whole time. So yeah, so you guys you are the intellectual giants of our ministry. That's why you're here tonight at the roundtable. So you should be able to figure yeah. this out <laughs> because you're our best and brightest. So so anytime you know. throughout. As you have a question, send it in, and I'm going to be, I've got them on the iPad back there, and then when we get to the Q&A, I'll ask them on your behalf, and Tyler will answer them. Yeah, we'll see To the best happens. of his ability. That's a good transition. Um, we're talking about probably one of the most difficult subjects in, um, in philosophy and theology, in the Christian faith. It's one of the things... 
it's probably the number one thing that keeps people from pursuing Christianity or has caused people to leave Christianity because something traumatic has happened in their life. Um, for example, my, my mom told me the other day that a friend of my brother's who went to Arlington Heights, and I, I remember this girl, um, she's married now and she has three kids, and my mom was telling me this story, and um, they tucked the kids into bed, and they tucked the youngest into bed. I think it was an 18-month-old. Uh, tucked her into bed, put her in a room, closed the door, you know, turned the lights out, and, and went downstairs just like every family does. That's what my wife and I do every night. So the next day, the, the father gets up and goes upstairs, and about halfway up the stairs, he's sweating profusely. And it's like a sauna upstairs. And uh, there was a malfunction in the air conditioning unit, and the heater cranked on, and the door was closed to the baby's room, and they go into the room, and the baby's dead. And uh, so my brother went to the funeral a couple days ago and said that the, the wife didn't even show up, and the husband uh, was just slumped over in his, in his seat at the funeral. Um, you know, and I've got two girls, and I think about that, and I think, what in the world, how do you process that? Why would that happen? Um, you know, natural disasters, tsunamis and tornadoes that rip people's homes to shreds and, and, and take away thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. Why? Why would God create a world where this kind of suffering happens on an individual level and on a collective level? This is a question that if we as Christians don't have some kind of answer for that, um, both for our, for our own lives and for those that we love that are in the faith and for those who are skeptical of Christianity, if we don't have answers to that, we're in big trouble. You know, Francis Schaeffer, who was a great theologian in the 20th century, said that the problem with the church is that we don't have honest answers to honest questions. We don't have honest answers. We like to create our own little cute, neat questions that we answer, that we can put a nice little bow on it, but it doesn't connect with the people that are really suffering out in the world. And so we as the church have to deal with this. And if you're new to the roundtable, the whole purpose of this monthly um, event is that we might learn how to think Christianly about all of life. Um, how do we think Christianly, not just about uh, the spiritual life or quiet times and devotionals and Sunday morning sermons, but how do we think Christianly about every facet of our lives, including the issue of suffering and evil? So here's what we're going to do tonight. This top part, you've got intellectual, pastoral, and then intellectual slash pastoral. So if you're taking notes, just you can put that at the top of your notes. We're going to start out dealing with the intellectual issue. So if you're a student and you get into this kind of debate with your buddies who are maybe skeptical or, or um, you know, or critiquing Christianity and you start to talk about the, the intellectual idea of the problem of evil, that's what we're going to cover first. You're at, you know, you're at work and you get in a conversation with a coworker and they're like, man, how do you handle the problem of evil? I don't believe in Christianity because Christianity doesn't have an answer to this we do have an intellectual answer to this. So that's the first part of what we're going to talk about. The second section is the pastoral element. So as a Christian, how do we help someone in the midst of suffering? 
How can we be a pastor to the people in our small group or to our family or friends that are in the midst of hell on earth? What's the pastoral response? And I'm going to tell you, these couldn't be more different. And then finally, we're going to talk about how they merge in someone's life that has experienced suffering and evil. So that's kind of the, the overarching direction we're going to go. Um, and then here's kind of the big idea. If you're taking notes, this is, this is my argument tonight that y'all are going to test to see if this claim holds up. My claim is that Christianity's answers to the problem of evil and suffering, so Christianity's answers to the problem of evil and suffering are not only valid, they're not only valid, but are the most convincing and promising of all the religious and philosophical systems. So, Christianity's answers to the problem of evil and suffering are not only valid, but are the most convincing and promising of all the religious and philosophical systems. So that's the argument I'm going to make tonight. Um, As we jump in, let's look at the intellectual side, and we need to define some terms. So anytime you're dealing with um, apologetics and how you defend your faith, you've got to define the terms. So... uh, Two important distinctions. You have natural evil and moral evil. Two important distinctions. Natural evil are things that are happening in the world um, that are not directly related to human sin. So um, hurricanes and you know, natural disasters and diseases and um, sicknesses and things like I just the story I just told. Um, And death, this is natural evil. Um, So as Christians, where where did natural evil come from? Anybody want to throw that out? When did natural evil come into the world? Lonnie? Exactly. Um, So if you look back in Genesis 1 through 3, you see the story of God's creation and the fall is what we call it. So natural evil exists because of the fall, because Adam and Eve disobeyed. God cursed not only humankind, but the world. And so death entered and sin and corruption. And then the second one is moral evil, and that came the moment that Adam and Eve sinned. Moral evil came into the world. And the crazy thing is, because we are born... um, because we are part of Adam and Eve's lineage, we can trace our lineage all the way back to Adam and Eve, we have inherited the sin that they committed. We, it's called original sin. We are born into sin. And because of that, we do things that hurt other people. We, we commit sins. We commit um, you know, acts of evil in God's eyes. And so moral evil comes because of that original sin. Um, Okay, so let's get into the, the, the nuts and bolts here. So this is the logical problem of evil. I'm sure you've heard it at some point. Question? Yeah. No, that's no problem. So moral evil was rooted in the, the sin of Adam and Eve, the disobedience to the law of God. 
So moral evil is when man commits acts of sin against other men and against creation. Um, it's rooted in the, the deformity of our heart, the sinful nature that we have, as opposed to the natural disasters and things that happen outside of our control. And we'll get into the details on that. Okay, so I'm sure you all have heard at some point in a philosophy class or something, um, you know, talking with friends. But here's the, here's the logical problem of evil. Number one, God is sovereign over all things. Okay, if you believe in a God, you believe he's sovereign over all things. That's point number one. Point number two, God is good. You know, I believe that the God of the Bible is sovereign and good. However, number three, evil still exists. So you've got a sovereign God who controls everything. You've got a good God who wants to bless people and doesn't like evil, would like to get rid of evil, and yet evil still exists. So here's the conclusion of skeptics, and here's the conclusion maybe of some people who profess faith in Christ but struggle with this. The conclusion is God is either not sovereign or he is not good. You tracking with me on that? So what they're saying is, is that you can't hold point number one and point number two at the same time if point number three is true. So they're arguing that God can't be sovereign and good if evil is in the world. So he's either good but can't control the things that are going on, or he's in complete control but he's not good because look at all the pain and suffering and evil in the world. Okay, so we're going to jump into some responses to this. So if you're taking notes, just response number one is a denial of God's sovereignty. So this is how some people, whether it's Christian or non-Christian, handle this dilemma. They just deny God's sovereignty. Listen, guys, I grew up with this first argument. When I was a kid, I was told by youth pastors and a variety of people that um, in order for us to, this is the free will argument. So God wants us to love him, not because we're forced to love him, but because we freely want to love him, because we choose to love him. And so because God desires us to choose to love him so much that he allows pain and suffering and he allows us to do bad things because he doesn't want to interfere with our freedom to choose. The free will argument. So they believe God is good and loving, and the reason evil still exists is because he doesn't want to intrude on our freedom, on the freedom of our will. Here's, here's the argument in a simple, simple way. You don't have to write this down. This is in uh, Tim Keller's book. I'll show it to you in a minute, this book. It's, I highly recommend it. But he says this, God created us not to be robots or animals of instinct, but free. Rational agents with the ability to choose and therefore love. But if God was to make us able to choose the good freely, then he had to make us capable of also choosing evil. So our free will can be abused, and that is the reason for evil. But this greater good, which is for us having a rational soul and for God of having real loving sons and daughters rather than some kind of pets, is worth the evil that inevitably also comes. Are you tracking with that argument? So God wants us to choose to love him so badly, and he doesn't want to interfere with that because then we'd be robots, he backs away and lets us make a lot of bad decisions that cause evil in the world. Okay, that's a response that denies point number one. 
And closely connected to that is this idea called privation. P-R-I-V-A-T-I-O-N, privation. Um, one of our, the early church fathers, Augustine or Augustine, um, promoted this idea of privation. And he argued that evil is not a thing, it's not a substance, it's anywhere where good is not there. So evil is the absence of good. And so it kind of fits in this free will category because when we don't choose good, we, we automatically degrade into evil. And so it's still in our hands. Evil is the absence of good. Um, so God did not actually create evil because it is not a distinct thing like other created objects. Um, yeah, so ultimately this view argues that evil is moving away from the good, becoming non-being. Creatures have a tendency to become less than perfect. Evil is non-being and God does not create non-being. So that's the point of that one. Any questions at this point on this position? Okay, so here's why I have problems with this position. I want to give you just a few. The first one, um, it explains only one category of evil. I don't think this position explains natural evil. It's just focusing on moral evil. It's saying human beings have the capacity to choose, and I don't want to interfere on that. So evil exists because human beings choose to do evil. But it doesn't account for all the natural evil that we see in the world that we don't have control over. It doesn't account for that. So what do we say about tsunamis that destroy 200,000 people? Um, when you look at this, God's not sovereign over that, but human beings aren't choosing that. So where does that evil come from? It's my first problem. Second problem, is it really true that God could not create free agents capable of love without making them also capable of evil? So we, you know, I grew up with this argument like God allows me to choose bad things because he wants me to choose to love him. But is it really true that God can't create free agents capable of love without making them also capable of evil? That, that's a question that I think this position doesn't really answer. The view is called, uh, we'll just, I, I actually don't want to get into this. I think it's a little much. It's called libertarian Ism, libertarianism. You don't have to worry about that. But it says that God cannot lead us to do the right thing without violating our free will. And so evil is inevitable for free agents. So let me try to make sense of this for you guys. When we in our culture talk about free will, we're talking about our ability to choose either good or evil. And God does not want to intrude on that. But when the Bible talks about this idea that man is free to choose, the Bible's not talking about that in the same way that our culture talks about that. So in the Bible, we're, Paul says we're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. The Bible says we're born into sin. All of our hearts have a disposition to sin. And so the way the Bible talks about us as humans making choices is that our choices are informed by our inclinations and by our environment, and by our motives, there's something that's pushing us in a direction to choose this instead of that. Our cultural idea of free will is that there is no, there is no drive behind the reason we choose A and not B. It's just random. And so because it's just random, the, God is not in control of that. 
Okay? So that's, that's this idea of, of, uh, of free will. And I don't think it's necessary to believe that for us to maintain the fact that God is sovereign, but we still have a choice. Um, and once again, we can, you, we can write down questions, text them in. I, I know this is kind of deep stuff, so we've got to process this, but I want to get through all the main points, um, and then we can come back and kind of process it. So here's another big thing, um, and I just kind of talked about this, but it ignores the difference between the modern view of freedom and the Bibles. So this free will position ignores the distinction between the two. We're free only to the extent that we walk in obedience to God's will. Um, and, and this is a great point, guys. So, so this is a key point. Is the retaining of my free choice worth all the horrible acts of evil and suffering in history? So is, is God's respecting my free choice so important that he allows all these other heinous things to happen in this world? For example, if, if my daughter, who's five years old, Rachel, I've got a five-year-old and, and soon to be a three-year-old, if Rachel is out playing in the yard and I see her run into the street to get a ball that rolls into the street, I have a decision to make. My daughter wants to go into the street and she has the freedom to do that to grab the ball. So do I as a dad say I want to respect her freedom of choice so much that I'm going to let her go into the street with oncoming traffic? And if that causes pain and suffering, then so be it. Absolutely not. I'm going to snatch her out of the street and pull her back onto the grass and say, don't do that again. I'm, uh, respecting her free will is not that important. What's more important is her as a whole being, her soul, her future, her life. And so I'm going to intrude on that. And it's the same logic with God. God doesn't respect our free will so much that he just sits back and lets us do whatever we want. He is involved in the world. He is interacting. He is moving in our lives. And he oftentimes prevents us from going down paths that we want to go down. Praise God for that. Do a quick inventory of the dumb things, dumb decisions you've made and how God has kept you from making even more dumb decisions. The fourth thing is we can't be sure of God's final victory. If God lets us make the choices we make and he doesn't interfere, how can we be sure that the ending is happy? Right? If, if the Bible says that God has orchestrated all things and that the ending is a new heavens and new earth and, and his glory and our salvation, um, that's great. But if he respects free will so much that he's not going to be involved, how can we guarantee that? Are you tracking with me on the distinction there? And finally, number five, and there's probably more, but this view assumes that if God gives us free will, that he cannot control the outcomes in this life. So this view assumes that if God gives us free will, then this can't be true, that God is still sovereign. This is one of the most important but confusing points in theology. I believe that the Bible has two different lines of truth that are parallel from Genesis to Revelation. One of those lines is God's sovereignty. You see it everywhere in the Bible, that God raises up nations and brings them down, that God appoints leaders and then removes them, that God has, has 
preordained people to do certain things. And, you know, Judas was preordained to betray Christ. Um, Pharaoh, God hardened his heart against the Israelites because of his purposes. We see this throughout Scripture. And yet, there's another truth that runs equally parallel. That truth is that we have moral responsibility. We also see in the Bible that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. We also see in the Bible that Judas was greedy and he wanted the money more than he wanted to honor Christ. We see in the Bible in the story of Joseph, when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, at the end of the story, Joseph, his brothers come to him and say, Joseph, we're sorry, please don't kill us after their father died. And Joseph said, listen, guys, relax, it's over. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. They willingly sold Joseph into slavery, and yet God's purposes prevailed, and God was in control the whole time. This position is called compatibilism. We're saying that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is compatible. It's not a contradiction. And because we live in a culture that, that puts reason above everything and logic and, and enlightenment thought that we can understand everything 100%, we are not comfortable with these two truths. And so what do we do? We either swing too far one way or too far the other way. That's a huge point, guys, that you have to keep the tension if you want to see this work out in a biblical way. God is sovereign, but we're responsible. Okay, so moving on. So we talked about the positions that deny God's sovereignty, but there's also a couple positions that deny God's goodness and keep his sovereignty. One of those is called hyper-Calvinism. <laughs> I know I'm throwing out big terms, but hey guys, this is once a month and we don't do anywhere else, so hang with me. If you have questions, stop me and raise your hand. Have any of y'all, how do I phrase this? The Calvinism-Arminianism debate. Have, are y'all, have y'all heard of that debate? Okay. We're not going to get into the history of Calvinism and Arminianism because we don't have time. But what I want to emphasize with this is there, there's a form of Calvinism that historically has been called hyper-Calvinism, hyper-Calvinism. And it's a strain of thought that emphasizes so much God's sovereignty that it undermines man's responsibility. Here's a great illustration of this. There was a missionary named William Carey. Um, he was a Baptist missionary to India. He was one of the first missionaries in the modern missionary movement. He was a shoemaker that felt the call of God to go to the ends of the earth. So he went to this minister's convention in, in England, London, England, in 1787. And he's sitting in this meeting with all these powerful, godly pastors, you know, older men. And he's this young shoemaker that's just on fire for Jesus. Um, you know, he, he's quoted as saying, attempt great things for God and pray great things for God. You know, he was like, why are we not going to the ends of the earth? He's reading the Bible and he's reading stories about Captain Cook and he's thinking, you know, why don't I go to the ends of the earth? And so he gets up and he says, I want to be a missionary. I want to go to the ends of the earth. And here's what one of the pastors says, a respectable man of God. He says, sit down, young man. When God decides to save the heathen, he will do it without our help. This was in England in 1787. There was a whole 
group of churches and pastors that believed it wasn't our responsibility to share the gospel. If God wanted to save somebody, he would do it. And so what is, it it creates this kind of fatalistic, deterministic worldview where we just sit back and, you know, it's called the frozen chosen. You know, we're chosen and, and we're just going to be still and, and we're not going to do anything. We're not going to be aggressive with the Great Commission. We're just going to have our little country club atmosphere and, and, and just go deep into theology and not worry about the people that are dying and going to hell all around us. Because if God wants to save them, he will. And I think ultimately that denies the heart of God and his love for the lost. It's, it's a... It's a pendulum swing that's way too far towards God's sovereignty. It's called hyper-Calvinism. Here's another religion that's fatalistic, Islam. Islam denies the love and the compassion and the goodness of God. Islam says whatever Allah decides, whatever he wills, he wills. And we have no control over that. And he's more of this distant God that we can't really understand and there's not that relational element and because of that they have this harsh view of evil and of the goodness of God so those are responses that deny God's goodness but there's also responses that deny evil you ever heard of the the uh, denomination called Christian science they deny the reality of evil in the Christian life like sickness is just in your mind you just got to you just got to think differently and it'll go away. You know, um, it's pretty crazy. Buddhism. Um, here's kind of the, the, the goal of Buddhism. To achieve a calmness of the soul in which all desire, individuality, and suffering are dissolved. So for Buddhists, evil is an illusion and we just have to escape it by becoming one with the world. Suffering and evil are illusions that you must detach yourself from. And so what ends up happening is you you don't feel joy and you don't feel sadness. You just become one with everything and embrace it and and try to detach your emotions from it. And it's a complete denial of the reality of evil in our own lives and in the world. This one's kind of a stretch, but I think it's, it's, uh, you know, it's causing big problems in the church, the prosperity gospel. So stay with me for a minute. The prosperity gospel believes that if you're a Christian and if you're walking in faith, that you can tell this sickness, be healed, and that sickness will go away. If you're poor, you can say, Lord, you can tithe and say, Lord, I believe, and and you're going to get a hundredfold back. It's this idea of if there's evil in your life, it's because you're not having enough faith. If there's suffering in your life, it's because you're not believing enough. And if you're really walking with God, you shouldn't be experiencing any evil or suffering or pain in your life. All of that is a result of your lack of faith. And it's doing damage around the world and it's exploding in South America and in Africa because it's a, it's a false promise. It's saying if you believe enough, evil will go away and cease to exist in your life and in your church and in your family. It's a false gospel. Okay, moving along. Responses that deny all three of these. What, what might that response be? Atheism. Um, atheism doesn't believe in a God, so there is no God to be sovereign over the world. There is no God who is good, and there really is no moral evil because there is no morality. Um, we are 
biological beings that are a part of the evolution of, of humanity. And we, um, we do things that help our, our species survive. And it's survival of the fittest. And so if we inflict harm on the weak, it's actually beneficial to the human race because it'll ensure that it continues. Um, so morality and evil, this idea of good and evil doesn't fit in atheism, regardless of what they say. There's no category for that. If you start saying that there's an obligation to do good and not bad, now you're starting to talk about some kind of inner moral compass, which means you're talking about some kind of inner soul, which means you're talking about something that's non-material. And atheism believes in a purely material world, and so they can't, they can't go there. Um, it's interesting, Tim Keller argues in his book on suffering and evil that secularism, which is another form of, of the argument of atheism, is probably the weakest of all worldviews at helping its adherents understand and endure the terror of life. If you really believe that this world is all that there is, that when you die, nothing happens, you become nothing, and that it's all about natural selection and the survival of the fittest, and there is no right and wrong, there is no good and evil, that does not help us understand the pain and suffering that we experience. And I think the reason we see so much depression and anxiety and suicide in our culture is because we've been brainwashed with this idea, this worldview, that this is all that there is. A guy named Charles Taylor, he's a philosopher, wrote a book called A Secular Age. He says that all of us have grown up in what he calls an imminent frame, an imminent frame. It means that this is all that there is. We have created this box which is just purely material. If you can't touch it, taste it, see it, feel it, hear it, it doesn't exist. We all grew up that way. If you grew up in public schools, whether your teachers you know, were aggressively teaching that or not, we've inherited that way of thinking. And because of that, we don't live as if there's a supernatural element to reality. We don't realize that behind the curtains is is, is God Almighty and angels and demons and spiritual warfare. And, and, you know, we don't realize that there's a heaven and a hell. Whether we, we say we do or not, we don't believe it, really. We don't live that way. And because of that, we live in this imminent frame, and it doesn't help us deal with suffering and evil very well. So we get discouraged. We, we get hopeless. We, when someone in our life dies, we, we go into despair because we're not believing that there's much more to reality than what we can see. That's what happens when you deny all three. Another philosopher named Alvin Plantinga, if you haven't heard of him, look him up, says that the secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort. And thus, no way to say there is such a thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. Accordingly, if you think there really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. If you think there's wickedness in the world, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. If you look back at World War II and what Hitler did by killing millions of people, and you have something inside of you that says, that is wrong, that should be judged, he should be punished, then that is a great argument for a theistic way of looking at the world. That is a great argument for God because where is that coming from if you believe in a purely natural world? 
Okay, so we've talked about those who deny God's sovereignty. We've talked about those who deny God's goodness. We've talked about those who deny evil and those who deny all three. I'm of the position of the camp that affirms all three. And so there's a few different ways to affirm all three, and I want to go through this briefly, and then we're going to wrap it up, and y'all can um, have a little time to text in your questions, and we can go from there. So the first one is called the greater good defense. So if I'm in a conversation with somebody who's a skeptic and they're like, hey, you know, how do you reconcile this problem of evil with Christianity? My, one of my responses is the greater good defense. It is possible that allowing pain for the good reason of bringing about greater happiness is valid and one we understand and use ourselves. So it is possible for God to allow pain and suffering and evil in order to produce a greater good and a greater happiness. Here's a perfect example in my opinion. Let's say you'd never heard of how humans came into existence. You'd never um, heard of women giving birth. You didn't know what that is. Um, Listen, I've seen two births. We've got two girls. It's horrifying. Um, It is one of the scariest things I've ever seen. Um, I try to block it out. But let's say... Let's say that you just get plopped into a delivery room and you've never seen that and you didn't know what was happening. And the woman is in the midst of a 12 to 15 hour labor uh, delivery. She's screaming, she's sweating, no anesthetics, no, you know, painkillers, nothing. It's just a natural birth. You know, the, all the vital signs are fluctuating, her blood pressure's going up. Her face is red, she's screaming, she's angry, and all the doctors are scrambling and nurses around. And what are you thinking in that moment if you'd never seen that before? Somebody stop this. What are we doing, guys? Stop what's going on. This is terrible. How could we inflict this pain on this woman? What are you thinking? And the reason they're thinking that is because they don't know what that's about to produce. They have no idea. And so if they hung around long enough, they'd see the birth of this beautiful child. And the woman, my wife, my wife did the same thing. She wants to have another child. We're talking about it. I need a little more time. But she wants to have another child because she, re, she has reinterpreted the pain that she went, to, went through on, on this end of it. She's looking back at what she went through. And because of the joy and the happiness and the ecstasy of giving birth to her child, she's willing to go through that pain all over again because of the payoff. That's the greater good defense. We're right in the midst. We're in the middle of history. We can't see the end like God can. We don't know what's happening. But my argument, if you look at the scriptures, is that what's taking place, God is producing something that's greater than we could ever imagine. And he's chosen to do it through evil, pain, and suffering. There's a great quote in the Bible. Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23. Keep the, the childbirth in mind as, you, as I read this. Paul says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit... Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, what is he talking about right there? What Paul's arguing is that God created a world 
And Adam and Eve sinned and brought evil and pain and suffering into the world. And God not only knew that was going to happen, he ordained for that to happen. We move through this life, and what's happening is, is this creation is giving birth to a new creation. And we're living in the midst of the birth pangs. And what's going to happen is, in this new creation, we're going to inherit resurrection bodies living in a resurrected earth, the new heavens and the new earth, and it's going to be pure joy, pure happiness, pure Uh, No pain, no suffering, and no ability to do evil ever again. It's perfection. And this world is currently in the midst of giving giving birth to that. And so, of course, we're seeing pain and suffering and evil. But it's giving birth to something far greater. That's the greater good defense. There's numerous stories in the Bible about that. The story of Joseph and the pain that he went through produced a greater good in the life of Israel. Jesus, which we're going to get to in a minute, is the perfect story of that. So with this position, suffering and pain equal growth and new life. One of my favorite passages is James chapter 1, 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face various trials, because the testing of your faith produces endurance. And when you let endurance do its complete work, you will become complete and mature, lacking nothing. It's only through the trials and the furnace of testing that we become who God's created us to be. Pain and suffering equal growth. Okay, next one. This is a philosophical defense that um, Alvin Plantinga, who's a famous philosopher, kind of uh, brought, brought to bear in the, in the early 70s in a book called God, Freedom, and Evil. Here's what he argues. The existence of evil is not logically incompatible with the existence of an all-powerful, all-knowing, and perfectly good God. So what he's arguing is that the existence of evil is not incompatible with these first two points. That's simply his argument. That, hey guys, this isn't a contradiction. These all three can, can work. Surprisingly, 25 years later... It has been widely acknowledged that the logical argument against God doesn't work. So even among secular philosophers, most of them agree that this does not prove that there is no God. And this does not prove that God can't be sovereign and good and still have a purpose for evil. In fact, one philosopher, William Alston, wrote that the idea that evil disproves the existence of God is now acknowledged on almost all sides to be completely bankrupt. The idea that evil disproves the existence of God is now acknowledged on almost all sides to be completely bankrupt. Whatever worldview you hold, everyone realizes that this doesn't hold up anymore, which is amazing. But here's what Plantinga did. He changed the argument. What we've done throughout church history is we've tried to create what's called a theodicy, where we go on the offensive and we try to prove this formula. We try to prove that God's sovereign and good and that evil can still exist. And so we try to package these really neat, tidy models and we, we, try, to, you know, we try to cover every single question that anybody could ask and it be watertight. And we all know that you can't do that. There's an element that we can't prove of this. 
proof in the sense of what most people want to see is proof, like like material, you know, um, the hypothesis, like I can prove it by, by evidence. We can't do that. And so what Plantinga did was he reversed it and said, we need to be on the defense. All we need to do is show that this is a valid way of looking at evil. All we need to do is show that this is not contradictory, that this could possibly happen. And now the onus is on the skeptic to prove that this can't happen. Do you see the switch there? So the balls and the burden of proof is now with the skeptic, not us. Because we're just saying that this is a valid option. We're not saying that we can prove it 100% watertight. We're saying that logically this is valid. Now they have to be the one to say this is impossible. Because how are they going to prove that? They can't. So this was a breakthrough in the philosophical world in America and in Europe. Alvin Plantinga. He, he, he was a pioneer and he changed the game. So a defense shies away from trying to tell a full story that reveals God's um, purposes in decreeing or allowing evil. A defense simply seeks to prove that the argument against God from evil fails, that the skeptics have failed to make their case. Now the ball's in their court. The burden of proof is on the person who says it's impossible for this to happen. Really, is it impossible? Show me. How can you prove that God can't be sovereign and good and evil still exists? They can't prove that. So the ball's in their court. Okay, just a couple more and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Keller says, if God has good reasons for allowing suffering and evil, then there's no contradiction between his existence and that of evil. So in order for his case not to fail, the skeptic would have to reply that God could not possibly have any such reasons, which is very hard to prove. Okay, this next one, the third defense, is a really cool one. It's the, the author story is what I've called it. Just the author slash story defense. Picture, think of the Lord of the Rings. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote that series. And um, if, if you've watched it, it's an amazing movie. I've heard the books are way better. I just haven't gotten around to it, reading them. But it's an amazing story that has people across all spectrums, good and evil and the gray area in between. You know, it, it deals with every human emotion. But there's great evil in the story. Who do you assign the evil to? In the story, do you assign it to the characters in the story or do you assign it back to J.R.R. Tolkien? So, when one of the evil characters commits evil in the story, who's to blame as we read it? Not Tolkien, he's the author, he's the one who's crafted the script, he's the one who's created the narrative. He's not responsible, it's the character. And we all inherently know that when we look at story. Guys, we're living in a story. It's the greatest story that's ever been told. It's real. It's happening. But God is the author of the story. And there are evil um, agents in this story. And they're the ones who are responsible for the evil, not the author. You tracking with me on that? That's a, that's a good way of looking at it. That's hard to, to refute. And then the, the final one is the most important one. It's the... the the gospel defense. How many gods of other religions suffer? How many gods of other religions 
suffer and know at the very core of his being what it means to to be a human and to suffer pain and rejection. No other religion except Christianity. Our God is not this distant being that doesn't understand suffering and evil. Our God came into this world and, and relinquished his comfort and his praises in heaven and took on human flesh and has experienced every kind of evil and suffering that we could experience, has experienced every kind of temptation that we could experience. He was human. He was fully God and fully human, and he suffered. In fact, the suffering that he experienced that week of his death is beyond our comprehension. It's a greater pain and suffering than anything we could ever experience. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was suffering so much that he was sweating blood. And on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, the perfect God who was in community with the Father and with the Holy Spirit forever and ever in that moment, the Father turned his back on him because he had the sin of the world on his shoulders. And in that moment, he felt pure rejection. We can't fathom that. Have you ever had a breakup? Have you ever had a, a breakup where you, you, know, you dated someone for three years and you broke up? Think of being in a perfect love relationship for eternity. And then in that moment, God turning his back. You being cast out of that relationship in that moment. That is suffering at its core. Our God knows. Our God has empathy and compassion and love for us in the midst of suffering and evil. Our God hates evil. And we don't know why, but he's allowing it to continue for a season. But one day he's going to judge. One day he's going to hold everyone accountable and he's going to make right all the wrongs in a way that we're going to look back and think it was worth it. And we can't say that our God doesn't understand Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are yet without sin. We have a God that not only suffered, but he died and rose again. We, of all people, have a hope greater than anyone else. Our God is not in the grave anymore. Jesus is not in the grave. He's reigning and ruling in his resurrection body. And his promise to us is when you die, you're going to be with me, and it's going to be far greater than being here. And one day I'm going to come back, and when I come back, you're going to be reunited with your resurrection body to live in a perfect resurrected world, and we're going to reign together forever in perfect happiness and joy. And, and, and the joy that we have in that moment is going to far outweigh the pain and suffering that we went through in this world. Tolkien and Lewis talked about how on, at, on that end, the story is is reinterpreted we, we see it differently because of the glory of the new heavens and the new earth and it's all going to be worth it the answer to the problem of suffering and evil is not a philosophy it's a person the answer to suffering and evil is not a cool, neat 
you know, watertight philosophy, the answer to suffering and evil is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the answer. On the cross, God's wrath and God's mercy united. And as Christians, we no longer are under the wrath of God. And whatever happens to us is for our good. Praise God. John Stott says this, and John Stott wrote a book called The Cross of Christ. I recommend it. He says this, listen. Just just listen to the words. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? If I've entered many Buddhist, he says, I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have to turn away. And in imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wretched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. This is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered the world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of this. Do you know that our God knows? Do you know that our God's not looking down angrily with his rule book, looking at all the ways you've messed up and saying, you're paying for your past sins. Our God is looking down with compassion and love and mercy and anger towards evil and suffering. And he's saying one day, one day. So that's the intellectual, you know, that's the big picture of the intellectual argument. Um, Did I leave some holes? Absolutely. Am I gonna answer all your questions? Absolutely not. But that is going to begin to give you a framework to start going deeper if you want to go deeper. That's the intellectual side. Now, very quickly, on the pastoral side, guys, that is not the time to, to make arguments and philosophical, you know, logical presentations of suffering and evil when someone is going through hell on earth, okay? Okay? So there's two different approaches as Christians. If we're in a situation where people are just kind of, you know, we're in a classroom, we're in a conversation, and it's not directly related to some life circumstance, yeah, talk about the intellectual side. Defend the faith. And if you're not in a situation where you're suffering an evil, nail this down, guys. Don't put it off and be like, well, I don't need to worry about it now. My life is good. Your life isn't always going to be good. This world has fallen. I promise you, every one of us will experience suffering and evil. No one's exempt. So if you're in a good place right now, take advantage of it. You're thinking clearly. Start learning and growing in this area. But if you're counseling someone or in the midst of it, guys, we can't go there. We can't go there. We've got to just comfort. We've we've got to be present. Um. So what do, what, do we, what do we not do in that situation? 
Here's some things not to say when a friend or a family member or someone close to you is suffering. You must have sinned or done something wrong. Let's not go there. And that, that might not be the case. That you know, Job did not sin and his life was turned upside down in a day. It's not always related to sin. So don't automatically think that this person is you know, wicked or has done, you must have done something wrong. Number two, don't focus on the loss of things instead of the loss of people. <laughs> don't focus on the loss of things instead of the loss of people if someone has experienced tragedy that includes both. Let's keep things in the right order. Number three, don't try to convince the person that this event will spare you of later problems. Like, hey, I know the breakup sucked, but man, it looked like it was heading in a bad direction. Uh, at least it kept you from having problems down the road. Bad idea. That's, they're not in a place to receive that. Fourthly, everyone has to die of something. That's stupid. That doesn't help. That's not comforting. That, hey, you know, everybody's got to die at some point. We all got to die of something. That's, that's just, please don't do that. Uh, number five, man, I know how you feel. You don't know how they feel. You have no idea how they feel. You're not, you don't have the same life experiences and personality and dispositions and, and background and context. And you don't know how they feel just because you had an experience similar even with breakups, most of us have had bad breakups, but you still don't really know how they feel because maybe you handled it differently. So just saying, hey, buddy, I know how you feel doesn't in the moment help a lot of times. What about I feel your pain? <laughs> I, I just, you, you, you don't feel their pain. That's just a cliche. That's just, uh, you know, hey, I feel your pain. And, and, you know, really, you don't feel anything of their pain. You're going to leave that conversation and go have an ice cream and go home and watch Netflix and feel nothing of their pain. You're just saying that. So that's my answer to that. Um, yeah, so, so the last one is don't, don't say, if someone's trying to wrestle with the intellectual side, don't say, oh, you're trying to put God in a box. Don't worry about the the theological side, you know, that's just going to get in your way. Um, you know, theology is important. So don't downplay the fact that that person is trying to fit it into a, trying to make sense of it. Don't say, oh, you're, you're wasting your time. Just don't worry about all that. Just believe in God. Like that definitely doesn't help someone who's intellectually minded that's trying to rationally process it. Saying that you're wasting your time doing that isn't a comfort in that moment. Okay, so how do we help them? There's not some universal way, but in my opinion and based on my experience and, you know, based on my understanding of the Bible, one of the most important things you can do is be with them. Be present because what often happens is when somebody faces a terrible life-changing event, you're so afraid of saying the wrong thing that you stay away from them. And you kind of avoid them, and everybody in their life is backing up and avoiding, and they're sitting there like, can't someone just, just you know, I need to feel the presence of other people. I need a hug. I need, I need someone to just sit and listen. And we're terrified to do that, and so it, it, it backfires. They need you to be there. 
but they don't need you to try to fix the problem. And then the, the, the second thing is to listen. Listening is one of the spiritual disciplines that gets neglected the most in the Christian life. Listening is a virtue that most of us don't have. We're not good at listening, and if you can develop that, that discipline, you will be valuable to the people in your life because they know they can come to you, and they know that you're not gonna you know, jump to conclusions and try to fix them right away, that you're just gonna listen and let them just, sometimes they just need to vomit it out and get it off their chest. Listen. Finally, this, this intellectual pastoral part is whether it's months, whether it's years, whether it's decades, eventually they're going to have to deal with the whys behind it. Once they're able to, to distance themselves from that event, their mind's going to start going to the why questions. And so as a friend in their life, you need to be there to be able to help them navigate what we just talked about at the beginning and help them make sense of what happened. Because eventually they're going to want to make sense of it. You tracking with me there? So you guys nail this down in your hearts and minds. And when you're in conversations where you need to, you know, defend the faith and give a, a good response, it's intellectual, but in the midst of the crisis, you know, don't worry about that. Just be there for them. And then however long it takes, eventually you're going to be valuable to them because you're going to help them process that event intellectually. So that is my attempt at making sense of one of the most difficult things in philosophy and theology. Now, let's take a couple minutes, and I want you to, if you haven't already, text some really clear, succinct questions, and we'll take the last 15 minutes to answer those. So, Coiner, if you want to, you can play a little music, and if y'all want to get some snacks and stuff, you can, and in about two or three minutes, we'll... Uh, We'll begin looking at these questions. say it's the last time how do you make it last when they're gone
Hey, all right, guys, let's go ahead and have a seat. So I, I want to get you all out of here is on time. So <laughs> y'all come on, come on down and have a seat. Okay, we're just going to jump in and try to get through as many as we can. So take it easy on me, Kristen. <laughs> oh, before you do that, I didn't sorry. Write these. Here's uh, three books that I would highly recommend when it comes to this issue. One is Tim Keller's Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Highly recommend it. Um, so I would grab that. The second one is Randy Alcorn, If God is Good, Faith in the Midst of Suffering and Evil. Randy Alcorn, If God is Good. One, one L. Um, and then the, the last one, which there's a gazillion more. I mentioned uh, Alvin Plantinga. If, you're in, if you want to go deeper, Alvin Plantinga. But this one is Suffering in the Goodness of God. It's a series called Theology and Community, edited by Morgan and Peterson. So those are, uh, you know, we just... We just scratched the surface. So if you're wanting to personally go deeper, which I recommend, that would be a good place to start. Okay. Okay. There's a lot of questions. So I'm going to go ahead and say we're not going to get to all of them. Um, but if we don't You know what we to... could do is we could answer them and send out an email. Oh, we don't know who's here. We don't have any way to know who's in the room. Well, the other thing I was going to say is if we don't get to yours or if more come up or you just have more questions, 
just get in touch with us and say, we'll hey, do blog. We'll can do we blog meet posts. up? Or, yeah, we could answer some on the blog or something. Yeah. So, okay, so okay, let's get let's rolling. Let's get started. Um, one of the first ones we had was about when you were talking about God making an agent of love yeah. without making evil. Yeah. Explain that, please. Yeah, so I knew that that was going to be the, the big one because we've all, most of us have grown up with that idea that, you know, love requires you to choose it without any, you know, any other involvement. Like it's got to come fully from you. So I would go back to my argument that there's this tension between God's sovereignty and, and, and our uh, responsibility and, and freedom of choice. So to go back to what I was saying earlier, we, we don't have free will in the sense that most people in our culture talk about free will. Like, so for example, if I wanted to get up tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. to work out, okay, put it on, put the alarm, and at 5 a.m. the alarm goes off, I have a choice to make, okay? So how do I decide which, which that I do? Do I get out of bed and go work out or do I stay in bed? What determines whether I do one or the other? Is it just random, like they're both completely equal and I just randomly choose A or B? Yes, no? Got heads doing a little both. No, it's not. What I'm gonna do is what I w most want to do in that moment. So when that alarm goes off, either I'm gonna desire to work out more than I desire to sleep or vice versa. Whatever I desire to do more based on a whole host of other factors, motives like you know New Year's resolutions and pressure from uh, my doctor, maybe it's physical, but there's all of these other factors that are pushing me one way or the other. So it's not just this idea of free will that we just have five options and just randomly do one or the other. There's all of these causes behind it. My argument is with free will that we're born into slavery to sin. And so what our heart most wants to do is, is rebel against God. And unless the Holy Spirit comes in and changes our heart, we're not going to choose Christ because our will is enslaved to sin. Just like the Israelites in the Old Testament were in bondage to Pharaoh. The New Testament makes this analogy. They were, they were in, in slavery, but God sent Moses to deliver his people out of slavery into freedom. Freedom is not free to do evil. Freedom for me is free to do good. And here's another big thing. In heaven, are we going to have free will? In the new heavens and new earth? If free will is the ideal for God, that what he most wants is for us to have free will so that we can choose good or evil and, and he can't compel us to love him, then, then heaven would be, uh, the new heavens and new earth would be less than ideal because we're not going to have the capacity to choose evil. We're all going to only have the capacity to choose good and to love God. Does that mean we're less as humans, that we don't have that freedom to do evil? My argument is no. So I just think we've gotten confused on this idea of free will, that God wants to protect our ability to choose evil or good when I don't see that as the main reason why evil exists. Next question. Okay. Um, how, do you Take talk, that. how do you talk about all of this with someone who doesn't consider the Bible a general or even personal authority? Yeah, that's, uh, 
you know, that's a big one. So my kind of rule of thumb, anytime I talk with somebody who doesn't believe in the Bible, I ask a lot of questions. And I don't quote a lot of scripture. I want to find out what are their presuppositions. What are the things that they believe in? Because everyone believes in something. So even a, a, a purely a pure naturalist, atheist, their belief is in science and technology most of the time. They're putting their faith in that. And so I'm going to ask questions about, I'm, I'm going to try to get them to doubt their own presuppositions and worldview. And then when it comes to evil, I'm going to ask them questions about how they handle it. And then I'm going to go with, like, with what Plantinga argued is that, you know, this is not a contradiction. And I, I would try to convince them that this is a legitimate, you know, I'm not saying you have to believe in this, but, you know, you, you have to see that this isn't a contradiction. And so I'm not going to try to make them a Christian in that conversation. I'm going to ask a lot of questions and I'm going to get them to articulate their view. And what I know to be true is that their view is not, not the truth. And so there's going to be a lot of holes in it. And I'm going to try to identify those holes and get them to, to start to doubt their position and maybe one day in the future we can have further conversations and they might be more receptive to the biblical worldview. But until they put their faith in the God of the Bible, you know, there's a lot of places we can't go. Um, but once again, this argument isn't just Christianity. There, there's most of the religions around the world see purpose behind evil. And so if you're talking to an atheist, um, you know, the theistic argument for evil has got a good track record around the world throughout the history of civilization. It's a pretty good side to be on. They're the one that, that has to bring, you know, they're the one that the burden of proof is on. So I would go into it with that kind of confidence. Okay, please speak more on natural evil. What does the Bible say about allowing natural disasters to happen to good people? Yeah, so my first qualification is what do you mean by good people? Um, you know, once again, what you believe about sin really helps you understand everything else. So if you don't believe in original sin, if you believe that we're all born neutral and some people become good and some people become bad, then the question is, this good person, evil has happened to them, why is this happening to, to somebody who's good? But as Christians, with a biblical worldview, we believe that we're all born into sin and no one is good, no, not one. No one seeks after God, no, not one, the Bible says. We're all bent towards sin unless God's grace invades our life. So original sin and total depravity are places that um, determine a lot when it comes to this question. What was the first part again? Read that again. Um, just about natural disasters. What does the Bible say about yeah, so Romans, Romans 1 is where I would go. And what Romans 1 says, Paul says that we're all, we're all evil and we're all held accountable for that and um, we're all responsible for that. And so there's not this person out there who's just completely innocent that something bad has happened to them and, and they're the person who, who doesn't deserve it. We don't deserve any of the good that's happened to us. You know, the bigger question is, how could God allow so much good in the world with so many people that are in rebellion against him? I mean, when you look at the world, there are a lot of people who have stiff-armed God and have rejected him completely and, in fact, are aggressively opposed to him and promoting worldviews that are contrary to the biblical worldview. And yet, 
the rain falls on their crops too. And yet, they get to sit around their fire with kids and, and have warm meals and live you know, a, a good life because God is good. And even those who are against him, he still blesses. That, to me, is the big question. Why didn't God just wipe us out in the first place? Okay. Once again, let me reiterate, I'm not going to satisfy all your answers. So, you know, I'm doing the best I can on that. But let's You're keep going. Uh, all right. Let's jump to some pastoral ones. Um, my friend lost her husband two months ago. She said to me angrily one morning, God took him from me. What is an appropriate response to this? God took him from me. Um, all I can say is what I personally think. Like, this is my opinion. This is not gospel truth. I wouldn't go into correction mode. That's not the time to try to critique their understanding of God and the way things are. It's two months after she lost her husband. She's not thinking clearly. She, she's broken to the core. She's, she's just at the end of herself. Um, that's not the time to get into a rational debate about, oh, well, actually, God didn't take him from you. God is, you know, God works all things for good for those who love. And, and get into this lecture about how she's not thinking right. What I would do is just, I would, I would look past that. And depending on how close they are to me, I would make note of that. And then one day in the future, I would want to readdress that when there's some more distance between that event and, and their emotions. Listen, the problem of evil is more an emotional problem than an intellectual problem. We're dealing with deep, deep pain and hurt and emotions. And really, it's not the time to try to solve it intellectually because their mind and their heart they're not thinking clearly in that moment. So I would just comfort them, love them, cry with them, listen to them, and, and let, that, let that go for the time being. Okay, another pastoral one. How do you deal with suffering individuals who seem caught up in the suffering beyond what seems like a reasonable period of time? That's a good question because we've got to determine a lot of things in that. What is a reasonable time? So you're making a lot of personal evaluations. In, in, a, in an ideal situation, that person is plugged into a community of, you know, they're in a small group. They've got a lot of people who love them. And those people can, can dialogue. And they can decide, you know, hey, do we need to have that conversation? I think, I think this is going too long. I think that they're they're in a pattern that they're not getting out of that rut, let's talk to them. As opposed to just one individual out of the blue saying it, it it'd be easier for that person to discount them and say, oh, you don't understand. And, but if the group comes to them and says, man, we love you, but uh, you know, we need to talk. It's, it's, been, it's been six months now, and, and you know, tell me what's going on. And it's still asking a lot of questions. Like I'm such a believer in asking questions and let them draw it out of them through questions, not preaching to them. Um, okay, we had a few on kind of the author story argument. Um, so if God is the author, why do we blame the characters in the story? I, I would say it, the same reason we naturally blame the characters in a story written by a human author. 
because God is the sovereign being who, who's, he, he has the right to create what kind of, whatever kind of narrative he wants to create. So, if, you know, if we don't like the things that go on in Lord of the Rings, um, you know, we could be frustrated at, at Tolkien, but it's his prerogative. Like, he, he gets to shape the story. He's the one in control. And I think of Romans 9 where Paul says, who are you to question the, uh, the potter? You're just the clay. Like, if the potter wants to do things this way, then that's his right. He's, he's God. And one thing that we do all the time is we think, if I can't understand it, then it must be wrong. But how arrogant is that? We're fallible human beings who've been corrupted by sin. Our minds aren't working 100%. We don't know. We, we can't see the whole story. So what right do we have to, to question God who is perfect and sovereign and good? And it, it would be just like getting mad at Tolkien in the middle of the story and, and you know, why doesn't it end well? And it's like, hey, finish the story. It does end well. I'm trying to get through as many. We got maybe time for two more. Okay. Um, so if someone says that evil, like um, premise three, yeah. they just don't even agree that evil exists, how would you talk with them about that? Well, the, the first thing is for, for someone who maybe is, is into Eastern religions, like Buddhism and Hinduism, where there's a tendency to think of evil as an illusion. Um, you know, I would say, let's say it is an illusion. Once again, guys, I'm just going off the cuff, but let's say it is an illusion. It's still terrible. Like, it still is wreaking havoc in people's lives, and it's still bad. You still got to deal with it. I don't care what you label it. We, we all agree it's still present. So um, that's one thing I would do. And then the other thing is... I would go to the, the um, you know, the natural evil. Tsunami, the, the physicality of hurricanes and tornadoes and the, 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 the degree of destruction, it's hard to see that as an illusion. The, the you know, the reality of it is so shocking that, that I would maybe focus more on the, how do we deal with the natural evil? Like, yeah, let's say that the moral side is, is an illusion, but what do you do with, with the natural side. So once again, that's just off the top of my head, that's the direction I would go with that. Um, not saying that it, it would go perfectly and not saying that they wouldn't think of other arguments, but um, regardless of how you define it, even as an illusion, it's still doing things. It's still happening. One more? Yep. Okay. Um, how would you talk to someone who says that the greater good argument still limits the sovereignty of God. Why isn't he able to produce the greater good without suffering? Yeah, that's an easy one. I don't know. Like, I couldn't tell you because I'm not God. Like, maybe he could have done this a million different ways, but he chose not to. He chose before the foundation of the world to make the cross the center of history. And he felt like, the pain and suffering and evil that, that happens in this world, uh, you know, it creates this, it's kind of like this, and I'll end with this. When I was 19, I, and I've talked about this before, but I went through a deep, dark battle with depression and anxiety. Before that summer of 1999, 
everything was great, and, you know, I was having fun, and I was playing baseball, got a scholarship, and, you know, loved people, and, and grew up in a middle-class home, and my parents gave me everything, and I was homecoming king, and people liked me, and I took it all for granted. And then the moment that summer of 1999 happened, and all of that was taken away to where I had a hard time being around anyone. I had a hard time going out of my room to go to baseball practice in school. I had a hard time functioning just as a normal human being. I longed for the day that I could go to sleep. You know, the end of the day where I could just go into my room and go to sleep and wish that I would never wake up again. I mean, it was, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But where I am today on the other side of that has given me such a greater appreciation for the little things in life, relationships, a great conversation that I used to take for granted, I now enjoy and see as precious. I don't deserve that conversation. I don't deserve that ministry or that wife or those kids or that house. I'm not saying I'm perfect with that. Do I struggle with you know all the other things? Absolutely. But there's a greater level, level of depth and inner fortitude that I didn't have before. And so, yeah, in my life, I do see this greater good defense of, man, I'm glad I went through that. I wouldn't change it because of what it's made me today. And I think on a worldwide level, God is bringing the world through that to where the trees outside are crying out for the new creation. The animals are crying out, make it happen now. We can't wait, but they're still suffering and evil, but it's going to make that day so much more precious and so much more amazing. And we're going to look back on this little bitty dash that we call our life and see it in the scope of eternity and think, wow, that was worth it. So, um, man, guys, I, I, I know that was a long ordeal, but I just felt like this might be my one shot to at least lay out the, the groundworks and then you guys can go deeper in whatever area you want to go deeper. Um, man, we serve an amazing God. And my answer to everything primarily is the gospel. If you have questions, go back to the cross because there's so much meaning and purpose and it's like the, it's, it's the lens through which we see everything else. It's the ultimate interpreter of life, the cross and Jesus Christ and what he did. So if I can encourage you one way, it's whenever you have questions, go to the cross and then start from there. So let me pray for us and... Uh, and, and uh, thank you guys for coming. It, it's been a treat. So, Father God, we thank you that, uh, man, we thank you that we serve a God who is not distant, who doesn't understand. Um, you're a God who understands more than we could ever fathom. Uh, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you took on humanity. You came into this dark, wicked, dirty, filthy world because of your love for us. And you allowed yourself to endure great affliction and rejection and pain and mocking and all of these things with us in mind because you wanted to set us free from sin and you wanted to pay the penalty for sin, which is death, so that we wouldn't have to pay for it. What a great God you are. Lord, help us to navigate this world that's filled with all kinds of different events that cause all kinds of different emotions. Lord, give us the fortitude and strength to endure to the end with, with the hope of eternal life always in our mind. 
Uh, We love you. We praise you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.